deals and money. We are constantly seeking deals and money as real estate investors. And I bet you're having a challenge right now, especially with deals, if you're like most real estate investors, because it's tough to find deals right now. But here's the thing. There's a competitive advantage out there that when implemented, it will help you accomplish your objective of getting more deals and or getting more investors. And that is having a great follow-up system. Having a great follow-up is one of the keys to success in real estate. And follow-up boss is the leading CRM for real estate. This is the system you need in place so you can reach out to owners and brokers directly for deals, or you can follow up with your investors and you do it all in one spot. The CRM makes it 10 times faster to call and text owners, then integrates those into a software so nothing slips through the cracks. The follow-up boss conversion system and powerful management tools help align your methods and drive growth that otherwise it could have been missed and probably would have been missed. Go to followupboss.com forward slash best ever to get a system in place. And if you need help, they got you covered. Follow-up boss offers experts seven days a week. You can pick up the phone and speak to an actual human being anytime during business hours. Visit followupboss.com forward slash best ever to check out how much time you could save by streamlining your follow-up process. Best ever listeners, they're treating you extra special. You get an extended 30-day free trial, twice the length of the normal trial. For a limited time, go to followupboss.com forward slash best ever and perfect your follow-up. Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. I went into a flip without knowing the flip business very well. I got caught up in the market. It was hot and we ended up holding it for 11 months. Best ever listeners, I'm excited to introduce you to our newest host that we're bringing on to the team. His name is Slocum Reed, along with myself and Ash. Slocum will be providing value to every interview he does. I've known Slocum for years and I've watched his portfolio continue to grow He currently owns and operates 65 units, including converting three units into an office building. So he's an owner-operator. He's coming from certainly a different perspective than I have. I know he's going to bring his expertise and cut through the fluff and get the best real estate investing advice ever for you. So welcome, Slocum Reed. Best ever listeners, welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Slocum Reed, and I'm here with Nelson Lynn. Nelson is joining us from Austin, Texas. He's the founder of Subtle Asset Management, which does data science consulting for commercial real estate firms to help them apply machine learning algorithms. He's also a GP in 164 units and two deals in Chicago and Jacksonville, Florida, and he's an LP on over 3,000 units and two industrial properties. Nelson, can you start us off with a little bit more about your background and then tell us what you're currently focused on? Yeah, I am a data scientist. I live in Austin, Texas right now. And my background, I basically build machine learning models and algorithms for mostly hedge funds. My biggest client is Brookfield Asset Management. I help them with their residential division. They have 10,000 single family homes, for example. So what I do is I crunch numbers and I output either projections for the future or sort of help guide on uh, both asset management and on uh, acquisitions. So my background is mostly around robotics originally, but I've sort of transitioned from the tech space where I used to work for Apple and Microsoft and Columbia, where I graduated from. And eventually I went into 
real estate. And I sort of found a niche where there's a combination between large firms that own a lot of real estate who have a big need for managing and organizing and finding data within their massive pool properties. Gotcha. Give us some specifics on the things that larger real estate firms do that you're building machine learning algorithms for so that they can improve their processes. I can't reveal too much data, obviously, but of course, uh, of course. one example is Brookfield has about 10,000 single family homes through their subsidiary Conrex. So on the 10,000 single family homes, you actually have a lot of data now to work with. So everyone knows about Zillow rents and Zillow estimates. The hard part with Zillow rents is that any Joe Schmo landlord could put their listing as a rental. And when you don't have good data, you don't really have good models. So when you're a professional landlord with 10,000 single family homes, you have a lot more data to work with, cleaner, and overall, you can get a much more accurate model. So the quote unquote Zillow rent model I built for them is about half the error rate compared to the actual Zillow model that they use. A few things about that as well. They focus a lot on internal data and a lot of proprietary sources that Zillow probably doesn't have access to. And on top of that, the company is very vertically integrated. So other than just acquisitions and finding what the Zillow rent price should be, we're tracking down tenant management issues. For example, if you have a tenant coming in, you can kind of give a ballpark estimate based on certain information, like how likely are they to default on rent? And machine learning and data science are these large buzzwords, but they're very slowly being adopted into the real estate space, mostly because of how hard it is to get organized and clean data. And really only commercial hedge funds and large firms right now have access to that information. Another way I've been helping, there's a fund out in Dallas. I'm building them a lead generation model. One thing I've been doing is putting an ear and scraping from different website sources to figure out which companies are going bankrupt. In Texas, for example, these are called war notices. War notices will tell people about, hey, this company fired 100 employees recently. You can use that to track and figure out for that state which company that is, and then on top of that, which properties they own, and you can get to them ahead of time before they go on market, because usually after layoff, they also try to divest themselves of the asset, right? So there's more than one way to apply machine learning in commercial real estate, but lead generation, asset management, acquisitions, there's quite a few ways to implement data to scale up and build your business, which is also stuff that I'm applying to my own GP business. I want to get to that, Nelson. I want to talk about how you're applying this to your own GP business, but correct me where I'm wrong on what you were just sharing with us, Nelson. It sounds to me like clearly in order to you to build quality machine learning algorithms, you have to have a large, accurate data set. And in your experience, it's the much larger companies, it's the hedge funds, it's the ones that own tens of thousands of rentals that have a data set large enough for you to work with so that you can create models for them to learn from their own data. So let's say I just bought my first single family rental. I'm not coming to you to ask me how much to rent it for. I need to just go to Zillow, don't I? More or less. Most of these companies, I have NDAs with them. They're not going to be sharing their proprietary data. And if they do sell it, usually only other hedge funds are the ones buying it because the license will be say $10,000 a month to source data from another company that owns several thousands of units. So it does feel unfair in a lot of ways, trying to compete 
but there are still ways for you to keep up and track mainly through census information. FRED, for example, is also really useful. It's an economic What is data. FRED? Oh, FRED is a federal database that the government keeps. And there's a lot of economic data, for example, Case Shiller and different rent CPI changes that you can use to track how prices have changed and how inflation is doing in a specific city. It's a pretty good historical model, but if you just type in FRED economic data in Google, it should pull up that website pretty quickly. Okay. Gotcha. You are in two general partnerships, 72 units in Chicago and 92 units in Jacksonville. Within your general partnerships, are you the entire general partnership or do you have a specialization within those partnerships? Yes. So obviously being a data scientist, my role in the group is largely doing the math, underwriting, but I also raise capital. My experience being on both East and West Coast in the finance and tech industry, a lot of my network is in both of those industries. So they generally have capital invest, but they would say never leave Brooklyn ever. They would never want to get out of the Bay Area, California. But if I am somebody who's in Chicago, a place they might visit once or twice in their lifetime, they'll gladly put money in places that cash flow, have a cheaper per dollar cost. And overall, there's easier access that I can provide them by being a boots on the ground person. Gotcha. So I have two questions for you, Nelson. The first question is, how are you using your experience as a data scientist to inform your underwriting beyond what the rest of us typically do? Nelson, the real question is, how can I learn how to use data science to improve my underwriting? Tell us what you're doing, but let us, the best ever listeners, and especially me, know how it is that we can improve our own underwriting by doing it more like how you're doing it. Got it. So you don't have to go as advanced as say building regression model. They tend to be expensive jobs to hire for. And they also are often above and beyond what's necessary to do well in real estate. So one way to really improve your underwriting is I don't think that most syndicators are keeping a good track of OMs that they've already seen. One major aspect that they could really use to benefit themselves is take a large sample size and use the estimates to figure out how conservative can I be on that. So I'll give an example. In Chicago, I have a list of dozens of OMs in the last year that I've seen for apartment complexes. I have the age listed, but more importantly, I have all the expenses listed. So when you take enough samples, you can figure out what's the average, but on top of that, you can figure out what is the tail end of the properties that might seem interesting or totally off. So if you have, say, 30 properties, you'll get an average that you can use as your underwriting, but you can go to the conservative case, which is, say, the maximum 33rd percentile for what you would pay in water expenses. So I've actually gone through OMs now and seen, hey, this property is actually at the 99th percentile for water expenses per unit. Why is that the case? It becomes pretty evident that there's a leak somewhere in the building. Nelson, let's stay on that example. When you're looking at an offer memorandum and you see 99th percentile water expense, the first alarm bell in my mind is, hey, if I find that leak, 
my operating expenses should go down dramatically. There's value. Is that the kind of thing that you're doing? Exactly. So usually I check in the water expenditure side, hey, there's a leak, or maybe there's an opportunity to replace with low flow water items. At the same time, you could also look at electrical expenses. These are super high. Probably they either haven't separately metered out or they haven't switched to all LEDs. On the HVAC side, maybe they're using all older boilers, something of that nature where you can check, hey, within this parabola or within this range that's normal, where are the numbers off on my expenses? And from there, you can figure out a value at very quickly without even having to visit the property that it stays outside of the normal range of what these expenses should be. But you can't really do that until you have a database of maybe 20 or 30 OMs that you've probably already looked at, but you never kept track of in, say, an Excel sheet. And something like that, you don't need a programmer who costs six figures a year to run your business for. You could keep track of yourself, hire a VA, uh, whoever's your underwriting. You should be accumulating a list of expenditures that you're spending. And then based on that, you could figure out where does this property land on the averages for each dollar amount. Nelson, this is really helpful. That makes so much sense. For everyone who's in acquisitions, reaching out to brokers, getting themselves in front of deals, we could be collecting data from all of those offer memoranda to figure out, like you said, the bell curve of each expense, water expenses that are way too high, more likely than way too low, or things that are being underestimated. Often, especially in a Midwestern market like mine, like Cincinnati with a smaller property, you're talking about an unsophisticated seller. And sometimes the broker has to create a pro forma because they're not getting sophisticated actual expenses from the owner. So if you're building that data set, it makes sense that you can be using it as a cross-reference for the expenses on the deals you're currently underwriting. To your point, 99th percentile water bill means there's a leak. I find the leak. I stop the leak. I've immediately added value. Where else in deal analysis is your background proving itself out to be very advantageous? So in any business, there's two ways to make money. Your profit is entirely determined by revenue minus expenses. So I've talked about estimating your expenses. You can also do the same thing with your revenue specifically. If you're estimating your revenue, it's very difficult to take just three comps in the area and say, this is it. This is the whole number. Usually within a statistical sample, you'll want, say, for example, 30 to get to a normal distribution that looks like a curve that makes sense. So, for example, if you're in a classroom and you only have three kids in the classroom, it's hard to say, hey, the average height for all kids of this age is six sure. foot for fifth graders. These are really tall fifth graders, right? Ideally, the more samples you have, the more of a curve it looks like, the more balanced that you can get for a number. You can't figure out what the normal range is. On real estate, when you're acquiring new properties, a lot of people will just take the three best, highest rental comps in the area to show, I guess, investors. It's hard sometimes because there aren't a lot to work with, but if you give them a range, that gives them an idea of how conservative do I want to be. You maybe you want to say, take the lowest range and give them an idea of a worst case scenario versus something that's a best case scenario on the high end. You shouldn't be sharing deals based on only the high end scenario, of course. You want to be as conservative as possible. So there's a website called rentometer.com that I like a lot. 
because it splits up based on that number. It has a 50% mark, a 25% mark, and a 75% mark. That means I know what my high target is, what my likely average target is, and what's my conservative rent case. How do I compete against, say, all these other properties in this area and all these other syndicators in the area if I want to be conservative? I want to target that 25th percentile for the rent. Maybe not 99th because you don't want to be too conservative. You'll price yourself out of the market. But on the acquisition side, you can also space it apart and then figure out from there, how should I be properly purchasing? And if you look on rentometer.com as well, they actually show you, hey, which properties are in the green, which means it's cheaper than the average. They also show you the red, which is what's more expensive than the average. So on the rentometer.com map, you can actually see, oh, there's a group of red properties. And when you look through it, you figure out, oh, this is a totally new construction, A-class neighborhood of apartment complexes. And the one I'm buying in is largely green in this area. So even though the average within a neighborhood might be high, I am in the cheap neighborhood that's a few blocks away. This might not happen in most markets, but in Midwest, like Chicago, it changes within three to four blocks right? A whole street could be class A storefronts. And then you have four blocks later, some of the roughest neighborhoods in town. The one particular I'm thinking of is Oak Park and Austin in Chicago. So when you are taking the estimates, you want to look at the area, but you also want to figure out what is my range. So I would say that data acquisition side would be really helpful when underwriting. We'll get back to the show with a first some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. What's holding you back from getting into apartment building deals? Is it knowledge, fear, inability to take action, lack of support? If it's any of these things, then I suggest you consider deal maker mentoring with Michael Blanc. Michael's program is the most effective program to help you syndicate your first apartment building deal. During deal maker mentoring, you'll work directly with one of Michael's experienced mentors who have successfully replaced their income with apartment buildings. They've already done what you want to do, which is become financially free. So in addition to providing their own syndication experience, they've been trained in Michael's unique deal maker blueprint designed to help you do your first deal and become financially free just like them in the next one to three years. To find out more, text the word Joe to 66866. I know Michael's going to get you to where you'd like to be. Again, text the word Joe to 66866. Do it right now while it's fresh on your mind, and let's get you started with your own syndication business. I'd like to introduce you to my good friends over at PassiveInvesting.com, a private equity real estate firm based out of the Carolinas. PassiveInvesting.com makes it easy for you to start investing in real estate. They focus on acquiring institutional quality apartments and self-storage facilities with private accredited investor funds. They also have a real estate debt fund that offers hard money loans to local fix and flippers across the U.S., which currently has a 0% default rate. With a portfolio of over $700 million in assets and controlling over $250 million in equity, they know how to secure the best deals and how to avoid the red flags. If you are interested in learning more, please reach out directly to PassiveInvesting.com and request the free Passive investor guide that outlines the seven red flags for passive apartment and self-storage investing. Visit PassiveInvesting.com forward slash red flags to download that PDF now. That's PassiveInvesting.com forward slash red flags. A couple other things here. I pronounce it rentometer. I don't know how it's supposed oh, okay. to be pronounced rentometer <laughs> or rentometer. It's an affordable service as a real estate agent. I compare it to sold comps 
for real estate sales, because typically what you're seeing in Rentometer is something that has already leased or that was mm-hmm. advertised for at least several months ago. I also use a combination of Zillow and apartments.com and other places to figure out the quote unquote active comps as an operator. Rentometer usually has a larger data set, especially now than the like active lease listing websites, but the active lease listing websites give me a good idea of what my competition is right now. Agreed. Uh, putting myself yeah. in the mind of a prospective tenant, they're not going to rentometer to see what rents were six months ago in the neighborhood. They're going to Zillow, Hubzoo, Dwellsy, whatever, and yep. seeing, okay, which apartments can I see this weekend? Another no. thing that that helps with, yep. to your point about the high red rents and the low green rents, it helps to have a street by street, block by block understanding of neighborhoods, as you were saying, but also that can be an indicator that if you're buying in the quote unquote green area where rents are low, that rents could be rising because amenities are being added to the neighborhood. Most often, at least in Cincinnati, we're seeing that that new construction, those new construction apartments that would have the higher than average rents. The first floor is entertainment, retail, restaurant, bar, the kind of things that the people living in the green more affordable apartments are going to be attracted to, and you should see rent growth in the area. The other thing that I use it for is trying to figure out which amenities actually increase rent rates and which don't. I assume you're doing something similar, Nelson, when you're analyzing for renovations. How much does it help to put laundry in the units? How necessary is it to have off-street parking, those kinds of things? When did you guys buy your deals in Chicago and Jacksonville? Chicago was actually beginning of 2021, I believe. And then Jacksonville was late 2021. So it was a COVID buys. Yeah. Tell us more about the Chicago deal and what attracted you to the market first. And then what attracted you to this property? And with what projections did you buy it in early 2021? Got it. So Chicago is the one thing that everyone will tell you and talk about is a terrible market to invest in. That's why I wanted to talk about that one. Yeah, Nelson, yeah. let's go. Across the board, all of the multifamily syndicators, large investors you'll talk to will say, why are you investing in Chicago? What are you doing? Yep. And to that, my response is because your response is that most people don't <laughs> invest in Chicago. <laughs> Yeah. Good luck finding something at market price in Austin, where I live right now. In Chicago, the thing is we can pick up properties at roughly 40, 50% off the stabilized basis value. We are not necessarily competing with the whole country for properties in Chicago, unlike say in Austin or pretty much anywhere in Texas right now. So we are buying in specific submarkets, though. We're not just buying in Chicago anywhere. So Chicago is the third biggest city in the country. What does that mean? Certain neighborhoods are the sizes of cities themselves. One particular area we're buying in, it's called Bronzeville. If you look at Rentometer, if you have a pro account and pretty much any sort of historical trend uh, site, there is a lot of creative appreciation that you can have, mainly because, well, rents have increased by a double digit amount even before the pandemic. For the last three or so years, prices have doubled since 2017. And so this is a small submarket that is outperforming most places in the U.S. that I've seen, but at the same time, it's big enough of the city that you'll get, for example, tier one lending because you're in Chicago. It's a major gateway city. 
So when we got CBRE to fund the loan, we got some pretty good deal terms that it would be harder to do in, say, Chattanooga, Tennessee. No, so let's dive into some of these numbers now. 72 doors in Chicago. When was it built? What's the unit mix? And then tell Uh, us, how much did you pay for it and what kind of lending terms did you get? Got it. So this was actually split across many buildings. One was 18 units and then a bunch of smaller six units. Deal terms are 3.75% with a bridge, I believe, in construction loan of a few hundred thousand. The numbers for that one, I'll have to actually pull them up real quick, but I think the Jacksonville one might be more interesting just because it's more recent. Can I explain that one instead? Let's stick with Chicago since we've already started there. Okay. No worries. Yeah, we're also uh, running a little short on time. Oh, apologies about that. Okay. So okay. in Chicago, the deal terms are 3.75% tier one lending. It's a gateway city in Chicago. And then the deal was split across multiple properties. We bought it all in. I want to say the first property was 1.5. And then the other one was 2. So 2.4. All in the value, we believe, will be around $6.5 million when it's all said and done. The first property, all in costs are around $1.5 million. should be worth $2 million when it's done. The other property we bought all in for two and a half million, but we believe it'll be worth around four when we're done. So the other packages, we are selling some of the smaller six units and then the deal size, I don't have it off the top of my head, unfortunately. Gotcha. What attracted you to Chicago though, is that Chicago is a large enough market that it's composed of sub-markets. And one of the things that I find true at Cincinnati, which is much smaller, a third the size of Chicago, I believe, is that even within an urban area the size of Cincinnati, when you have a lot of new redevelopment attracted to one particular neighborhood or one part of a neighborhood, the tide rises in the surrounding neighborhoods as well. So if you wanted to say Cincinnati is an X market, it's a seven cap market or something like that, you're missing out on what's happening at a more micro level. And what you found in Chicago was a particular neighborhood that has seen a lot of appreciation recently and an opportunity to buy a collection of smaller properties that doesn't hit the inbox of a lot of syndicators, A, because it's in Chicago, B, because they were smaller properties that gave you this opportunity to take advantage of, they're not just rent growth trends in places like this, they're reurbanization trends all things considered. So that's pretty exciting. And you guys underwrote this to a five-year hold, I would imagine. We actually are at the seven-year hold and we're estimating a 22% IRR. The big reason was most of the value came from the beginning. So it's hard to do the math on exactly, but across 72 units, 18 of them we bought at 90 a unit because those are a lot of three beds and we actually have some four beds in there as well. So they're bigger units. And then another 54 we bought were a bit smaller and we bought them around 50,000 a unit. So the all-in math is we're buying at around 60% of what the stabilized value should be, putting another 20%, which is like 20, 30 grand even per unit. So we're all in for around 80% of the full value based on today's market comps. So if we were to sell, we could make that 20% profit or we could actually refinance out and do a major burr. The cap rate in Chicago right now for the areas we're in is still around 6%. Everyone likes a 
per deal, but imagine doing that on 72 units in Chicago, for example. It's very hard to pull that off in a city like Austin just because it's so competitive. Yeah. Being so competitive in Austin is one of the reasons why you're able to pull it off in Chicago because everyone is paying attention to Texas and the Southeast. Nelson, are you ready for our best ever lightning round? Yes, I am. Awesome. What is your best ever way to give back? I run a group called Subtle Asian Real Estate. I give back a lot of information and teach how to invest in real estate. A lot of them are starting from zero to one. I used to put a lot of time towards a food pantry when I was living in Chicago, but since I moved, I have mostly been focusing on educating and helping people get started in real estate. What is the best ever book you recently read? I'm currently reading The Gap in the Game. I had a bit of a mindset shift recently, and I've been getting help a lot. People pointing me towards The Gap in the Game to sort of pick up on what it's like to be an entrepreneur and do better in my business. What is the best ever skill you've developed in commercial real estate outside of your data science background? I think the best ever skill I've developed is raising capital. It's something that I didn't expect to do. But for example, the Subtle Asian Real Estate Group is now that 13,000 members. It was a pandemic project and it's kind of taken a life of its own. And I've recently had a lot of people reach out, not just to figure out how to start investing, but also be an LP in my groups. What is your best ever advice, Nelson? My best ever advice, <laughs> don't dive into something without doing the research first. I made a mistake on a flip recently, which would probably be, if I remember correctly, there's a section on what's your worst deal, and I'll save it for that if we're going over that next. We're not, no. Okay. But, well, but, but uh, tell us about it. I went into a flip without knowing the flip business very well. I got caught up in the market. It was hot, and we ended up holding it for 11 months. We didn't mm. lose money. We still bought it decently cheap, but I did not pick the best renovation style for it. Did um, you have high interest debt? No, luckily I gotcha. borrowed it, but it was low interest. And luckily, even though we paid off the debt, it was still kind of a harrowing situation to have an empty vacant unit for 11 months. Gotcha. Nelson, where can our best ever listeners get in touch with you? You can either find me by Googling Nelson Lynn or subtleassets.com. Those are my websites. You can also find me on my Facebook page, Subtle Asian Real Estate. Those are probably the best ways to reach out to me. Great. Well, Best ever listeners, thank you for tuning in. If you've gotten value from this episode, please subscribe to our podcast. Do leave us a five-star review and share this episode with a friend that this conversation with Nelson could add value to. Thank you and have a best ever day.